1 Samuel chapter 31, it's the last chapter. We've, uh, I don't know how long we've been in this, uh, 20 weeks, 21 weeks, something like that. It was supposed to be shorter, tried. I think we set out for originally for 14 weeks, and then it went to 15 and then 16. I think we did all right, though, 20 weeks for uh, 31 chapters in the Old Testament. I think we did all right. As we come to the last chapter, chapter 31, it is a somber chapter. It, it ends on a, uh, um, a note of tragedy. We, and we'll see that the collapse of Israel at the hands of the Philistines at Gilboa, the death of King Saul, the death of all three royal princes, all three sons, the flight of thousands of, of Israelites out of their land, out of their homes, and worst of all, the disgrace of God's name amongst the nations. It's a fitting end for a most auspicious beginning. If you remember how we started this, this call to kingship back in 1 Samuel chapter 6, the people of Israel were no longer satisfied with God as their king. They were no longer satisfied with Samuel as their prophet. And so they went to Samuel and they said, give us a king. We want a king. And God, being as gracious as God is, he spoke to them through the prophet Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. These are all the words of the Lord. God said, listen, this king, he will take your sons, he will take your daughters, he will take the best of your fields, he will take your servants. He said, in that day you'll cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations. We started this narrative in rebellion, and we end in rebellion, and we end in the consequences of rebellion. The loss of their children, the loss of their king, the loss of their land, the loss of their homes. I mean, we could use the word tragic And it's almost uh, an understatement. I hear people use the word tragic a lot today. They get stuck in traffic, and that was tragic. You know, their meal didn't come out right, and that was tragic. I don't know that that's tragedy. This is tragedy. They, They no longer have their children. They no longer have their homes. They no longer have their king. They no longer have their kingdom. This is tragedy. But if we come away with 1 Samuel, and all that resonates is tragedy, then we've missed the entire teaching of the entire book. In fact, if you come away from Scripture with all that you have is tragedy, then you've missed the gospel. Paul was right when he said in Romans 8, 28, that God is working all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And that's what he's trying to teach us here. There's great goodness that comes from the tragedy that unfolds. So let us this morning, let us do this. Let us look at this closing chapter. And I want us to look at three things. First, the perceived tragedy, that which we think is tragic but is not. Two, the real tragedy... And number three, the tragedy redeemed. The perceived tragedy, the real tragedy, and then tragedy redeemed. Are you ready? If you're ready, say amen. All right. First, the perceived tragedy. The battle we talked about last week where all five Philistine lords had gathered at Aphek, they were going to make their way into Israel. And this was, a, this was a, a, a blow they wanted to exercise on Israel and King Saul. They were going to cut through the plain of Estrelon. And they were going to try to separate, essentially cut Israel in half and, and cut Saul off from the northern tribes. This was their goal. And so they had gathered there. And, and what we start with here is the battle underway. All five lords and all their men have now gone into Israel and now they're fighting. Look at verses 1 and 2 of 1 Samuel 31. 
We read, Now the Philistines were fighting against Israel, and the men of Israel fled before the Philistines and fell slain at Mount Gilboa. Verse 2, The Philistines overtook Saul and his sons, and the Philistines struck down Jonathan and Abinadab and Malchishua, the sons of Saul. Jonathan is the first reported casualty in, our, in the news that we get from the battlefront. And it, it, would, be, it would be wrong for us, in light of, San, of, of Jonathan's great impact in our narrative, to just blow by this man without a proper eulogy or without honoring him correctly. David, in the next book, in 2 Samuel chapter 1, David eulogizes his friend. He writes this in chapter 1, verses 25 and 26. He says, How, how the mighty have fallen in the midst of the battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. And then he writes, I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary, surpassing the love of a woman. Jonathan's obituary, were it to be written in the Christian daily today, would humble us all. We have seen a man of godly character, a man who submitted to his father, even though his father was engaged in horrendous behavior. We saw Jonathan early on stand up to his dad, who was also king because of his father's hatred for David. In 1 Samuel 19, Jonathan spoke well of David to his father, and he said to him, He has not sinned against you. Why then will you sin against innocent blood by trying to kill David without cause? Saul's response to this, as you well know, he cursed David, cursed David's mother, and then he threw a spear at him. Jonathan remained faithful. The crown prince to be king was a very humble man, surrendering the future of his throne unto David freely because he knew that God had anointed David to be king. He was a a, a friend, a confidant. He would go to David and encourage David when he was down and give counsel to David when he was confused. He was a man of great courage. We saw that at Gibeah. When his father and all the men were hiding in the caves, he took a servant out and he attacked and successfully destroyed an entire Philistine garrison. He was certainly a man of perseverance and great integrity. He knew in this final battle, he knew that God was no longer with his father. He knew that God was no longer speaking to Saul. And yet he, in honor to his king, he engaged in the final battle at Gilboa and in so doing, he gave his life. Jonathan's life of faith and trust in God is um, it's beautiful to read. I shared with you when we were dealing with Jonathan, I've loved the character of Jonathan in all my studies of Scripture. And a, a question that comes up in Jonathan's journey is why? I mean, why would a man of such great faith have such a tragic ending? Why would his life proceed like this? Some people said, well, why wasn't he anointed king? He was certainly, he was more fit to be king than his father, or even David for that matter. Why wasn't he anointed king? Why such a, a terrible ending for such a noble character. People have said, why, doesn't, why didn't God let him serve with David or grow old with David or have his family with David? Why this ending, this faithful man? And then they will attach tragedy to it. But, but was Jonathan's life really tragic? I mean, when we look at how he lived, his testimony in life and death, would we say it's a tragic life? I would say absolutely not. His life was one of submission and trust and obedience to the living God. Not first to his father or to David or to his country, but to Yahweh. I would argue that the narrative that we have here in 1 Samuel reveals Jonathan's life and death was not tragic. It was magnificent. It was truly glorious. When Jonathan on that day that he died in battle at Gilboa came into the presence of God, 
and he stood before God. He had lived his entire life by God's grace, faithfully serving God and God's anointed. He was faithful to his father. He was faithful to David. He was faithful in battle. He was faithful to his men. And he died in fidelity to God. In other words, it was his constant trust in the Lord that enabled him to live this faithful life. Psalm 112, uh, verses 5 and 6 and 9, we could have used these to write his obituary. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in his commands. That was Jonathan. Surely he will never be shaken. A righteous man will be remembered forever. That is Jonathan. Verse 9, it says, his righteousness endures forever. That could be Jonathan's obituary. The why questions that we ask, why do these bad things, these tragic ends happen to people like Jonathan? They're very telling for us to ask such questions. It reveals a deep undercurrent in our cultural moment where we believe that self-fulfillment is a right, that we should have the life that we want, the life that, that we think we should have. It, we, we live in a culture and a time when we believe if you work hard and you're disciplined and, and, and you're wise about making choices, that things should go your way. And within the context of the church, we throw a little Christianity in the name of Jesus in that, and then you have a guarantee that your life should go your way. But Jonathan knew better. He understood that he was serving a king infinitely greater than Saul or David, and he was serving in a kingdom infinitely greater than the borders of Israel. He understood that the kingdom was not his to rule. It was not his to take. The kingdom was his to serve in faithfully as a servant. That means doing whatever God had ordained him to do, whether great or small, until his last breath. And this he did. And therefore, his life and his death, although tragic by human standards, was a life well-lived according to the standards of the kingdom of God. One commentator wrote this. Listen, he said, Maybe a tragic life isn't tragic at all if it's lived in fidelity to what Christ asks of us in the circumstances he's given us. Did you hear that? If you live the life that God has called you to live in light of the circumstances that you've been given faithfully to God, then tragedy could not be attached to that life. We give so much attention, even in the church, especially in some evangelical circles, we give so much attention to the greater saints, you know, the high-profile pastors, teachers, preachers, and ministries, and we say, well, they must be successful because of their size. They must be successful because of their following. But the kingdom of God, which is the only kingdom that eternally matters, views things differently. It's fidelity, it's faithfulness to God in the call that he has given to you in the circumstances he has given to you in the moment in history that he's placed you in that matters. Your faithfulness with the resources he's given you and the gifts he's given you in the moment that he's given you to serve. And that means, saints, listen closely, whether... You're sharing the gospel with thousands or you're taking care of your dying grandmother. Whether you are planting churches in the 1040 window or raising your two-year-old to know, love, and serve the Lord. What matters isn't the size or the scope of your service. It's that you're serving God faithfully in what he's called you to do. I want to read to you a quote from Charles Spurgeon that struck me this week. Um, I need to hear this myself again and again. Listen. Listen. 
This applies to all those who know Christ. Spurgeon said, magnifying the Most High, he said, it's not an office, it's it's earnestness. He said, it's not position, it is grace which will enable us to glorify God. And then he writes this, God is most surely glorified in the cobbler's stall. The name of Jesus is most surely glorified by the poor and unlearned delivery man as much as the popular preacher who throughout the country is thundering out the gospel. God is glorified by our serving him in our proper vocation. Therefore, he writes, do not, do not, discontent, do not be discontented with your calling. Let your first care be to glorify God to the utmost of your power where you are. Fill your present sphere to his praise. And if he needs you in another, he will show it to you. I love that. That means every single person saved by grace has been equipped by God but through the power of the Holy Spirit and your gifting at this moment to be faithful like Jonathan. It may be small, it may be grand in the the eyes of the world, but God calls us to faithfulness, daily faithfulness to Christ. That's glorious. It doesn't matter what your life looks like from the world's perspective. It doesn't matter how your life ends from the world's perspective. The world may say tragic, but we see here it's magnificent. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Saints, those are words that need to resonate within the context of the church today. Whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. And then he said of himself in in verse 28 of Matthew 20, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jonathan's life was not tragic. It was wonderfully glorious. He lived and died faithfully serving the true king, not becoming a king himself, not enjoying the kingship of David, not having their families grow old together. He served paving the way for the man who would be king from whom the king, the Messiah, would come. He was a servant. He served his father, he served David, he served his people, but most importantly, he served God. By God's grace, we would live such tragic, other-centered lives. We would live such tragic, other-centered lives that we would have Psalm 112 be our eulogy, that our righteousness would go on forever because of the great grace of God in our lives not desiring to bring glory to ourselves, but desiring to simply serve, to simply love Christ. So first, I want us to see that the perceived tragedy is just that, is perception in Jonathan. Secondly, I want us to look at the real tragedy, because there is a tragedy in this story, and it may be hidden as well. The language, for those of you who read chapter 31 before you came in today, the language is brutal. I mean, it is language of disaster, It's language of catastrophe. Look at verses 3 through 7. The battle pressed hard against Saul, and the archers found him, and he was badly wounded by the archers. Then Saul said to his arm bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised come and thrust me through and mistreat me. But his armor bearer would not, for he feared greatly. Therefore Saul took his own sword and fell upon it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell upon his sword and died with him. Verse 6. Thus Saul died, and his three sons, and his armor bearer, and all his men on the same day together. And when the men of Israel, who were on the other side of the valley, 
and those beyond the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead. They abandoned their cities and they fled and the Philistines came and lived in them. The words, the language of tragedy, some of the words fallen, wounded, pierced, fled, struck down, died, stripped, cut off. This is language of catastrophe. This is language of judgment upon a rebellious king and a rebellious people. What we find here in the story is that Saul had been wounded by Philistine arrows and he's dying, but he's not dead. And so he calls out to his armor bearer, take your sword and thrust me through. But the armor bearer had a right understanding of God's anointed. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to touch you because God anointed you. And so tragically, even in his last moments, Saul has to turn to himself to kill himself. He has to fall upon his own sword. What a contrast from the glorious beginnings back in chapter 10, if you remember. Back in chapter 10, Samuel said to all the people, when Saul came forward, he said, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted what? Long live the king. That's how we started our narrative. How do we end it? We end it with death, not life. We end it on a sword, not peace. We end it with God's judgment, not mercy upon Saul because of what Saul brought upon himself and the people. It is tragic to see a man so blessed, anointed by God, chosen by God, to serve in this great capacity, to throw it all away, to end his life, not remaining steadfast, not serving faithfully as a king, but to die, to fall on his own sword for his own glory and his own pride and his own kingdom. Jesus said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. Now we can say rightly, according to scripture, that those who live lives of unrepentant rebellion against the living God, shaking their fists, shaking your sword at the creator your whole life, never repenting, never turning, never submitting to the fact that God is king and his kingdom is real and one day his kingdom will come, never submitting to these things, that we too, every single person who does not repent and turn and follow Christ, will one day fall upon their sword in this life and in the next. In fact, we can take the same language and apply it to all those perpetually unrepentant, Fallen, wounded, pierced, struck down, stripped, cut off, dead. How do we know this? Because everyone, without exception, is worshiping someone or something. Everyone is worshiping. Everyone is submitting to someone or something. And that means that you are either submitting to and worshiping the living God, who is not only holy, but he's radically gracious. The living God is merciful, and he sent Christ to die for our sins that we might have hope in him. The living God offers us a radically different end than death. And we're either serving him and following him, saying we're going to have life instead of death. We're going to have freedom instead of slavery. We're going to be brought into the community of God rather than cut off. Or you're serving yourself. You're living a life as you think you ought to live. You're serving yourself according to your wisdom and your power and your strength. The Bible tells us that the end of self-worship is always the same. It is always tragic. The end of self-worship is one of you devouring yourselves and others. And we do that well. We destroy ourselves. And ultimately, like Saul, we'll end up falling upon our own swords. No matter how well you think your life is going right now based upon your own lordship, the end will be like Saul's. Saul started in chapter 10 thinking this is going to be a glorious kingdom and he couldn't even get someone to kill him. He had to, he had to fall on his own sword. In our narrative, I mean, look at how this ends. 
Saul the king is dead. Jonathan's dead. Abinadab, Malchishua, the other two sons, are dead. All of his men are dead. The Philistines had come in and lived in their cities and towns. The people had fled. This is catastrophe. This is judgment. You know Saul's commission back in 1 Samuel 9, you know what it was? It was to free Israel from the hands of the Philistines. That was his commission, 1 Samuel 9.16. But instead, how does it end? Because of his rebellion against God, because of his unwillingness to submit to the word of God, the Philistines come, they overtake his kingdom, they kill him, they kill his sons, and worst of all, here's the greatest tragedy. God's name, the name of the living God, is maligned amongst the people. This is the greatest tragedy of all that God's name is dishonored, that his name is shamed amongst the Philistines and all those around. Look at verses 8, 9, and 10. The next day, when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they were there to get the plunder, they found Saul and his three sons fallen at Mount Gilboa. Listen to what they do. Verse 9, So they cut off his head, King Saul, they stripped off his armor and they sent messengers throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news, to carry the gospel, not our gospel, their gospel, to the house of their idols and to the people. They put Saul's armor in the temple of Ashtaroth and they fastened his body to the wall at Bethshan. Just like when the ark was taken and placed in the temple of Dagon, the victory over King Saul was more than a geographic victory. It was more than just getting plunder. The people of uh, the Philistines and the surrounding nations, they believed that if King Saul fell, then God had fallen. That God was unable to protect the king or his people. And so this was not just a victory in land. This was a victory over God's. And so when they sent out the word, the word certainly was, Ashtaroth was victorious over Yahweh. The Philistine God conquered Israel's God. King Saul is dead. Here's his body without his head, uh, uh, nailed to the wall at Bethshan. It was certainly considered a victory for the Philistines and a defeat for Israel and therefore the name of God. The greatest tragedy in our text, it's not the fall of King Saul. The greatest tragedy in our text isn't even the defeat of Israel or the flight of Israel. The greatest tragedy in our text is the dishonor that was attached to the name of God. That amongst the nations, his name was maligned. My beloved, we were created to glorify God, to magnify his name. Your purpose here in worshiping him and glorifying him and magnifying him through our obedience and our love, and this was the opposite. The world rejoices to see God's people fall in sin. The world rejoices when they see a pastor fall from God's grace or a church collapse or divide. The world rejoices to see us crumble under pressure because what it does is it solidifies in the unrepentant mind, one, God is not real, or two, God's not powerful enough to protect and keep his anointed. He couldn't protect Saul. He couldn't protect Israel. Therefore, if this God is real, this God is weak, or maybe he's not real at all. Now, whether individually or corporately as one body, how we live our lives on a daily basis matters eternally. 
spouses, how you love one another, how you serve one another, how you care for one another, speaks to your God. Children, how you love and obey your parents, speaks to your God. Employees, how you work, whether joyfully submitting to your boss, holding your tongue, serving your colleagues, working through crisis in the workplace with great peace, communicates your God. As friends, do you, as Tim Keller would say, let your friends all the way in and never let them down? If you do, it speaks to your God. As members of the body of Christ serving in local church, it speaks to your God. Loving one another, submitting to one another, exercising your gifts together as a church, it speaks to our God. Jesus said in John 13, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Verse 35, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. This is how the world knows. How is the world to know that we actually know Christ? Many will say, well, I go to church. It's not what the Bible says. Many will say, well, I was baptized. It's not what the Bible says. How will the world know that we actually are disciples of Jesus Christ? The world will know that you know me if you love one another. That's the testimony. Because that brings his name, honor, and glory. Everything we do, every moment of every day, either, either honors God and brings him glory or it does not. It's one of the two. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Not shame him or mock him or give reason for others to take his name in vain, but praise his glorious name. This is not just a reflection upon a dead king and a fallen people or a reflection upon the Philistines gloating, thinking that they had somehow defeated Yahweh. This is a call to God's people everywhere in all of human history to live lives in such a way that his name is glorified, that it's magnified. How you are at home, how you are at work, how you are at church, how you came to church this morning either magnifies his name or it does not. If you stayed up late last night and therefore you're so tired you can barely hear me speak right now, that's not glorifying to his name. If you came in here ill-prepared, you haven't looked at the scriptures, you haven't prayed, you're not even ready to hear the word, that does not magnify his name. How you leave this place, if unchanged, if we gather as a church to worship God and his presence is here and we leave unchanged, that does not glorify his name. We're not supposed to be conformed to the world, we're supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our minds every moment of every day. So what? So that we can live in such a way that God is glorified. I don't know that our culture looks at the church today and they glorify the name of God because of the church. I know that happens. But we're supposed to happen. And if it's not happening, it's on us. It's not that we lack power. It's not that we lack revelation. As parents, Lori and I have tried to faithfully raise our children in the faith, we have failed in many ways. For those of you who have been here long enough with us, you know those failures. But one area that we have consistently brought to their attention is their testimony to the world. Most people who know my family know that my children are sons of a pastor. Most know they've been raised in the church their whole life. 
and therefore their lives are scrutinized by the church and by the world. And I would say rightfully so. Some have come to me and they say, you know, it's not right that your children are under a microscope because they're PKs, right? They're pastor's kids. As if my children have some equal right to engage in, in more sin or as much sin as any other child. It makes me chuckle because every believer is called to the same standard to be salt and light. Whether you're the child of a pastor or the child of a garbage collector, it doesn't matter. Every single person saved by God's grace is to be salt and light every moment of every day. Scrutiny is a good thing. We should want people looking at our lives. We should be willing to open up our lives and say, this is how I live. These are my struggles. These are my sins. Here's my confession. Here's what God has done. Individually, corporately, at work or at home, in church, in the grocery store. Saints, our highest priority is to glorify and magnify the name of God. Our highest priority. And that's how you live. It's how you speak. It's how you relate. It's how you serve or don't serve. It's how you work. It's how you play. It's how you church. It's how you worship. And that means a life lived like Saul is tragic, but not simply because of his life and death. It's tragic because of the legacy that Saul left. Saul's legacy was dishonored to the name of God. That is utterly tragic. It is most tragic. So we can say this, the most tragic life lived, the most tragic life you can live is a life that dishonors the name of God. It's the most tragic life. Not your occupation, not how much money you make, not your marriage, not your children, not your end, not your death. The most tragic life is one that dishonors the name of God. What a contradiction to the very purpose for which we were created to bring him honor and glory. Good morning, brother. So first, perceived tragedy. Second, the real tragedy. And then I don't want to leave you. Chapter 31, you say, is this it? We have the perceived tragedy, which is Jonathan. We have the real tragedy, which is Saul and and God's name being maligned amongst the people. Doesn't end there because the tragedy is redeemed. The great gospel message is not one of despair. It's one of hope. It's not one of discouragement. It's encouragement. It's not an ending in death. The gospel of grace is an ending in life with Christ both now and forever. Some of your ears are not listening. You're not listening, I can tell. You know that there are times, brothers and sisters, and this is not some prophetic gift. I can tell by your eyes you're not listening. It's not hard. I imagine if I went before and I stood and you were watching a movie and I stood up there and you know, you're watching the movie and you're kind of like this. I could, I could argue that you were not really listening to the movie or watching the movie. By God's grace, Listen. Open your hearts and minds this morning. I sat for the entire week on my rear end writing this sermon. I didn't have a lot else to do. The fall of King Saul and his men was extensive. So much so that Israel scatters. It wasn't just the death of Saul. It wasn't just the death of his sons. It wasn't just the overthrow of Israel. The people leave. They leave the promised land. It says in verse 7, they went to the other side of the valley, or those on the other side of the valley fled. Likely, where Mount Gilboa was, the valley of Jezreel was to the north. They fled. They saw what was happening. Those who were on the west of the Jordan, they fled to the east of the Jordan. In other words, minimally we know this. There was widespread fear and desertion. 
with Saul and his sons dead, David still in Ziklag. The people have no king, they have no leader, they have no shepherd. And so what happens? The sheep scatter. And they scattered. But there were a few. There were a few men from Jabesh Gilead who were not afraid. But they were motivated by gratitude. They, they risked their lives to, to go in and take the dead body of King Saul that had been nailed to the wall at Beth Shan and his sons. They risked their lives to go get his dead body. Look with me at verses 11, 12, and 13. When the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and went all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Beth Shan. And they came to Jabesh and they burned them there. And then they took their bones and they buried them under the tamarisk tree in Jabesh and fasted seven days. Men of valor indeed. Hearing the abuse to Saul's body that he had been beheaded, disgraced, disrobed, disgraced, and then nailed to the fortress wall at Bethshan, disgraced. Hearing this, they grieved. They grieved over their king. They grieved over the disgrace that it brought to the name of their living God. And so these men, these men risked their lives on a 22-mile round-trip trek in the middle of the night to go retrieve dead bodies. They risked their lives. You say, well, why would they do such a thing? Why, why the men of, of Jabesh Gilead? What, what, what compelled them to go and bring back Saul's dead body? For those of you who were here with us during this study, you'll remember 1 Samuel chapter 11. You'll remember what happened with Nahash, the Ammonite king, when he came and he besieged Jabesh Gilead. Do you remember this? 1 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, Nahash, the Ammonite king, went up and he besieged Jabesh Gilead. And all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, make a treaty with us and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, on this condition, I will make a treaty with you that I gouge out all your right eyes. You remember that, right? How can you forget that? That I gouge out your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all of Israel. Well, if you remember, the men of Jabesh, they sent word to Saul. And they said, Saul, we're in trouble. We need help. And we're told that the spirit of the Lord rushed upon Saul. And Saul grabbed his men and they marched all night to Jabesh Gilead. And they freed them from the hands of the Ammonite king. It's providential. This was his first saving act. Saul started his reign by delivering the men of Jabesh Gilead from the hands of their enemy. And he ends with the men of Jabesh delivering his body from the hands of his. It's extraordinary. It was a debt of gratitude. They could not repay Saul for saving their lives, but they could honor him. Listen, they could honor him in his death. They could honor him in his death by removing the disgrace of his decapitated body from the walls of Bethshan. Heartfelt gratitude is a powerful force, especially when someone has served you in a most sacrificial way. Gratitude, true gratitude, moves people to do extraordinary things, including risking one's life. There were two men in the New Testament who wanted to show their gratitude for another king in his death. A man who at the end of his battle was also nailed up for public display and humiliation by his enemies. I'll read to you from John chapter 9, verses 38 and following. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. 
With Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. At the place, verse 41, at the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, out of their gratitude for the work of Christ and out of their love for God, they went and they took Jesus' dead body off the cross and they laid it in a tomb, having no idea, having no idea what this king was going to do for them in a matter of days. You see, unlike Saul, who was taken back to Jabesh and was burned and then buried, his bones were placed on the tamarisk tree. Unlike King Saul, Jesus went into the tomb, but he didn't stay there. He went into the tomb, and then on the third day, he rose from the dead. And so from that great tragedy, the greatest tragedy in all of human history, which was indeed the Son of God dying on the cross, came the greatest hope. How so? How from this great tragedy came great hope to mankind? When we executed, when mankind executed the Son of God on the cross, the term tragedy took on a whole new meaning. The men of Jabesh went to rescue Saul's body under the darkness of night. We're told in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, verse 33, at the sixth hour, while Christ is hanging on the cross, at the sixth hour, which would be 12 noon, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. Darkness reigned. But there was no rescue for Christ. Darkness came over the whole land, but no one came to his aid. No one set Christ free. Instead, we're told in Mark chapter 15, verse 34, that at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You know what that means. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The greatest tragedy that took place on the cross was not the physical mutilation and death of our Lord. The greatest tragedy that took place upon the cross was Jesus Christ being forsaken by the Father. So what happened in that moment when Christ said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was experiencing in that moment the full wrath, the full cup of God's wrath that was to be poured out upon sinful man as he died for those that he would save. He was taking the punishment that we rightly deserved, literally being forsaken by God. The greatest tragedy on the cross, my beloved, wasn't physical, it was spiritual. It wasn't religious, it was relational. Now, you say, well, how, how does this greatest tragedy in all of human history bring me any hope at all? It just still sounds tragic. The ending still sounds bad. Because we won't read the rest of the psalm. Psalm 22, the same psalm that Jesus quotes when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It continues in verse 24 and says this, listen closely. For he has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one, God to the the Son. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. After the travail of Jesus' soul, God listened to his cry for help by raising him from the dead. Why? So that glory and not shame, so that honor and not disgrace would be Jesus' end. To glorify his name so that his great name 
the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, would once more be made known and glorified in all the nations, just as we had a chance to sing this morning, that through his people, through the church, God would bring glory and honor and praise out of the mouth of sinners that have been saved by grace, people that were completely lost and had now been found, those who were living in darkness have seen this great light that through the church, through God's people, his name would be glorified and magnified through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what every time we gather, every time we gather and we contemplate and sing to and pray about the great work of Christ, his name is magnified. The psalmist continues, From you comes the theme of my praise in the great assembly. Before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vows. And then he writes, The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. And then in Psalm 22, verse 27, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Jesus, on the cross, accomplished the work that he came to do. He accomplished it. You say, what was that? The redemption of man? Yes, but that wasn't the ultimate reason. It was to glorify and magnify the name of his Father, who in turn would glorify and magnify the name of the Son. And they've been doing that for all eternity, giving and receiving glory and honor and majesty. And by God's grace, we get caught up in it. Jesus' death and resurrection of the dead means hope for sinful man. It means for all those who repent and believe and follow Christ, we will be resurrected too. That means that we won't end like Saul. Our end won't be falling upon our sword and having death now and forever. Our end will be with God, in the presence of God, glorifying God forever. Your purpose, the reason you were created, will be fulfilled in Christ forever. That which we do poorly and dimly now will be done in his presence perfectly. If the men of Jabesh Gilead felt compelled to serve Saul in his death out of their gratitude for him saving them from the Ammonite king Nahash, risking their lives to recover a dead body, How much more should God's church, those who have been saved by grace, serve with grateful hearts a crucified, risen Savior and King? They went and they took Saul off and they buried him. We buried Christ and he rose from the dead. We have a king that is alive and well that we, by the power of the Holy Spirit through grace, can serve every moment of every day. This king who through his death not only saves us from having our eyes gouged out, which is a good thing, but he saves us from eternal damnation. This king saves us from Saul's life and death. This king says it doesn't have to be like Saul. It doesn't have to be a life of rebellion. It doesn't have to be a life of of being cut off from God and falling upon your sword. It can be a life like Jonathan. By God's grace, the power of the Holy Spirit, you can live an an obedient, loving life in Christ. Simply trusting and obeying and following God in the midst of your circumstances, no matter what he's asked you to do.
three closing applications. You ready? The message of the cross of Christ, properly understood and applied to our lives, will produce in us a power that is motivated by gratitude. We talk about having a grateful heart in the church, but that's not just a feeling. A grateful heart produces work. It produces service. It moves people. Whether you're a man in Jabesh Gilead going to retrieve a dead body, or you're a faithful saint serving in the context of a local church, grateful hearts have power. And that means, saints, that in light of the gospel of grace, in light of the death and resurrection of Christ, we should long to serve one another. We should long to serve the lost. We should long to. And that, that means when, our, when it's not convenient for us, when it's hard for us, because our hearts are filled with gratitude. There's movement beyond the convenient. There's movement. Gratitude moves us beyond the hardship or the cost involved. Like the men of Jabesh Gilead, maybe even risking our lives for our crucified risen Savior. Serving out of a great love for Christ. So thankful that God would send Christ to do the unthinkable for us. We sing a song here by Isaac Watts. And the last line of the last verse, I'm going to read a few, but the last line of the last verse, I think says it all. Isaac Watts says, when I survey the wondrous cross, it was when I look to the cross and I contemplate the great work of Christ, his death and his resurrection from it, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Listen to this last one. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, you finish it. Demands my soul, my life, my all. That's a grateful heart. The grateful heart says, my soul, my life, my all. The grateful heart stands before God as Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6 and says, send me, Lord. I'll do whatever you want me to do, Lord. It doesn't matter what you ask. I'll go. I'll do because of what Christ did for me, because of the love of Christ in me. And it won't be a religious motivation. It won't be to put God in your debt or think somehow if I'm good enough, God will accept me. This is, this is a gratitude born out of love. The love poured out on you in Christ and your love Return to him in glorifying his name. So first, it'll produce gratitude. Secondly, contemplating the cross, it'll enable us to be satisfied. Now listen, my most ambitious sorts, to be satisfied in the life God has called and equipped you to live in the circumstances that he has given you. Our station in life, whether lowly or great, mundane or exciting, should be exercised faithfully to the glory of God's name. No longer trying to earn your way to heaven by being a good person, by putting God in your debt through some extraordinary service. Jesus sets you free from all that religious, it's, and it, it's terrible, it's a religious slavery. He sets you free from that to serve God joyfully, to exercise your gifts joyfully, to serve joyfully. The gospel of grace should change our perception of service. It's to change it from an ought to a want. 
from a really to I get to? You'll be concerned about the little things. You'll be concerned about the little things that matter to other people. You'll see that being a servant in the kingdom of God is the greatest calling of all. Being a servant, that's not just serving, that's being a servant is the greatest calling in the kingdom of God. You'll see that God's name is honored when we love one another as the scriptures call us to. When we serve one another as the scriptures call us to. You'll see that God's name is honored when you serve the lost by sharing the gospel with them. When you meet the needs of the hungry and the poor and the widows and the downtrodden. When you faithfully minister to one another. When husbands love their wives and wives their husbands. When, when men are heads of households and raise their children to know and love and serve God. When members of the body of Christ gather together and love together and serve together. All these things glorify and magnify the name of God. So one, a grateful heart. Two, being satisfied. And lastly, and I'll close, the redemptive tragedy of the cross of Christ should cultivate in the heart of a true believer deep, abiding joy. I'm not talking a joy the world offers. I'm talking a deep, abiding joy that is with you in both the good times and the bad times. If you only have joy when life is easy, that's not biblical joy. Biblical joy is with you. And you'll have joy because in Christ, Saul's end is not your end. In Jesus Christ, you will not be forsaken by the Father if you are in Christ. In Christ, your future is secured by the broken body and the spilled blood of his Son if you are in him. And that means, saints, here's your glorious eschatological thought of the day. Ready? There is no tragedy in your future in Christ. In heaven, it will be completely unfettered It'll be complete, unfettered joy in the presence of the king. Why? Because you'll have Christ. You'll have Jesus. You'll have his presence forever. That single truth, understood and applied, will put all of your current troubles, all of your crises, all of your struggles in their proper context. And you will say with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that what? That far outweighs them all. And you will actually believe it. You won't read that and go, Paul, you have no idea what I'm going through. That's what we do. Paul knew quite well what we go through. I would argue we don't know the degree to which Paul went through trials and tribulation. You'll know joy in the midst of suffering. You'll you'll know joy in the midst of crisis because tragedy, saints, for the believer is not the last chapter in your life. Tragedy's not it. It's not death, it's life. It's not being cut off, it's being brought in. It's not being forsaken, it's being known by the living God through and through. Saul served himself and his end was destruction. Jonathan served God 
And Jonathan's righteousness in Christ lives on forever. I can't wait to talk to Jonathan. Can't wait to sit down with him. Jesus Christ died to set you free from Saul's life. A life that is all about you, all about your interests, all about your needs, which is ultimately destructive. Saint, you know, the more self-centered you become, do you know the more destructive you become? The more life becomes about you, your kingdom, your needs, your money, the more it's about you, the more everything falls apart. And ultimately, if you press that to the very end, then you too will need to ask someone to kill you and they'll say no and you've got to fall on your own sword just like Saul. Jesus Christ set us free from that so that we, listen, that we might live and then live for others. Christ set us free from that so that we might live and live for others. There, there it, this is where tragedy is turned to hope and where sin is overcome by the love of Christ so that you can say with the Apostle Paul, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me in the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then you can live by faith. You can walk by faith. And in so doing, when you live a life of faith, according to Scripture, your life honors and glorifies the name of God. The very purpose for which you were created, the very purpose for which you were placed on this planet, the very purpose for your entire life, which is to magnify and glorify the name of God, is fulfilled in Christ. What a glorious life and what a glorious end. And you know what? There is no end to that. It goes on forever and ever. We will forever and ever glorify and magnify the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, worshiping him. Sermon's over. Saul did not start off his reign thinking he was going to end falling on his own sword. He had deceived himself. There are many in the church today, I imagine in churches throughout the world, sitting and listening to sermons thinking to themselves, I must be like Jonathan and not like Saul, having no idea that indeed they are Saul as well. My beloved, I pray it's not you. I pray by God's grace that this morning you would realize the great gift that's offered to us in Christ and that you would receive that gift of grace. That you would examine yourselves even this week, maybe this night, And you would contemplate the degree to which you serve Christ out of the gratitude that's filled your heart through the cross. There's such hope that he offers for us individually, for us as a body. We're going to, I'm going to pray and then we're going to take communion. This is for believers. Do not take this if you do not know Christ. The communion ordinance is is one that reflects the broken body and the spilled blood of Jesus. The cost of saving fallen man. The cost of having all creation glorify the name of God. We will participate in this holy ordinance. Pastor Kurt's going to lead this. As you take the bread and you receive the juice, 
Ask yourselves, is my life like Saul's? Is my life like Jonathan's? Do I serve anybody besides myself? Is that service motivated by selfish desires as well? Does the gratitude of the love that God has poured out fill my heart? Examine yourselves as we go through this. Let's pray. Father, we know that sin veils us. It covers our ears. It hardens our hearts. It puts a glaze over our eyes so that we cannot hear you. I ask, Father, you'd be gracious with us this hour. You would open our ears. You would soften our hearts. You would take the cataracts off our eyes that we might see your face and hear your voice and respond to Christ this morning. Saved or unsaved, Father, every day you call us to come before Christ, to bow our knee and to follow him. Every day you call us to pick up our cross. For those here who do not know you, I pray, Lord, that you be gracious and save them. Show them your holiness and show them the great work of Christ on the cross, they might be saved. For those of us, Lord, who do know you, I pray that you would stir in up us a mighty zeal for Christ. You would fill our hearts with the gratitude that comes from the cross. We would not be a lukewarm people. We would not be a people that muddle through this life with nothing to show before you in the end. I pray, Lord, for a resurrection of our lives in this church a deep, abiding passion and zeal for Christ and the gospel. I pray, Lord, that you would, upon our hearts and minds, impress all those names and faces that we know that do not know you, and that this week, as we pray for them, we'd share the gospel with them. You would not be silent, but filled with great courage. That this week, Lord, as we go through trials and tribulations, we would think of our brothers and sisters, and we'd pray for them, and we would serve them, This week would not be a week of self-consumption, but of other-centered living. Father, I ask you to do a mighty work in us, for we cannot do it on our own. You must do this work, and so I ask you to be gracious with us. Be gracious with your church. I ask these things in Christ's name, that he might be glorified, and for no other reason that in our lives and in our life as a church, that your son's name would be magnified. Both the saved and unsaved would know that you are the living God because of the way we live. You call us to this, Lord. You command it. But we should want it. Cultivate that desire, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.